Commanders, and welcome to the potato episode of Lave Radio. Maybe episode 249 beta, maybe 251. We just don't know. Uh, this is not an episode we don't know what the hell we're doing, but Sound we're again? here, we're doing something. Um, for the record, before we say anything, my PC is literally, I've had a Windows 10 update forced on me at 2029, 20, I think it was. It was like, you are taking this and I'm restarting right now. So I'm actually doing this over my phone. Hopefully you guys can hear me and hopefully I'm understandable. Um, About the same as usual. Hopefully, hopefully I'll get my PC back at some point this evening. But I've been sitting at 27% for about the past 10 minutes, so who knows. Anyway, joining me we have Commander Shan. Hello. And we're also joined by Mac Winston from EIC. Hello. We also have Yannick. And I think you're also in EIC, is that right? Good evening. Uh, no, I'm not in EIC, but okay, Mac so Winston and me have flown together quite a few times, so we know each other quite well. Right, and but you guys are actually, you're not here to talk about EIC things, you're here to talk about the Apollo 11 expedition. That's right, yeah. yes. So we'll get into that in a bit. Um, so, Shan, why don't you say what stuff you've been up to while I hit the reboot button? Oh, gosh. Um, we'll stop. Uh, in game, I took advantage of the Steam sale and brought myself a another account for twelve pounds. I think it was. Um, that about right, yeah. So that's uh, Elite Dangerous Hand Horizon. So I thought I'd try out the new starter area and uh, see how that was. And it was remarkable in the new starter area because it was amazing. Certainly at the time I was there, of how trusting everyone was. Okay, that's nice. You know, like the, you know, like the, I mean, there the, there were a couple of commanders um, sat well outside the fire zone of the station, just drifting in their sidewinders, clearly AAFK, and yeah. you know, it was. I thought you wouldn't do that in normal open. You would not drift around being AFK outside a station um, in in a sidewinder, and there were other things as well. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was sort of like a. A happy place um, until I got a viper, mm. uh, and 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 but then I was I was made to leave. This is I was evicted. Oh, uh, you got you got, did, did, Were you a naughty boy and you got forcibly evicted? Or were you I just successful might, and forcibly evicted. I think I was successful and then I got evicted. Okay, I was I was naughty and then I got evicted. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was quite an interesting experience. You, you know, when you start and you when a new game comes out and no one really knows what they're doing and they're all in yeah. the starter area and everyone's all friendly and chatty. It was a bit like that, and it was quite strange coming from sort of normal open play where it's yeah, you know, the slightest sign of weakness in your toast kind of thing. So yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, so then what to do? I got I then got a sidewinder, 
they, they give you a couple of hundred thousand credit missions just for going outside the um the area. Oh, yeah. I, I I nabbed those, brought a cobra, stacked it full of mining gear, went off to avoid Opal Place, and um, within an hour, within an hour, I'd got a hundred and something million credits. So you know, mm-hmm. so I, I'm not sure about the level of progression, um, because being able to jump from a cobra to an anaconda within three hours seems a bit <laughs> quick to me. Yeah. I'll- yeah, I'd agree there. I mean, I know this is something Yamix, not Yannick, Yamix covered the other day <laughs> in one of his videos, uh, where I think he got to an anaconda in about four hours. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that video, but yeah, so I'll see. very similar to what you did. I'll see. I'm not sure whether to um, educate new players on the ways of open play or whether to go and do something else. Um, we shall see how communities. Friendly, I'm feeling. By educate uh, new players in the way of open play, do you mean reset your commander again and just go into the new barrier and grief people, don't you? No, I, I generally want to help players. Okay, um, so it's a genuine, so, I want to just sit out here and yeah. talk to people, not shoot them. No, I, I, want, I want to help players survive better. And the okay. only way of doing that is by natural selection. I mean, do you want, why <laughs> so you are going to go to the noob area and kill everyone? Um, I wouldn't. You might think that I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the, it is a fine balance because you don't want to go in there and spoil players' first experience of the game. No. The last thing you want to do is someone come along in a murder machine and just blat them and put them off the game and that did temper my fun somewhat in the new area because it's like yeah okay Mr. Sidewell you really shouldn't float around in the middle of a space not doing anything and not responding or anything if you want to continue to survive very long you know and, and you don't so you just put yourself in the player position if you're a new player I mean I can imagine the poor guy was probably still trying to map his keys probably yes um, so yeah that's what I've been up to in game um, personally, I've been having a, one heck of a time these last couple of weeks. I won't, I won't um, make gross people out um, <laughs> for the uh, over the air. But if you see me at LaverCon, you'll understand why um, it's will gross people out. Are you I, wanting to see what you your son was involved with recently? Oh, well, uh, yes, uh, Minishan Jr. Yes, on Sunday, um, Minishan Jr., who is in the Household Cavalry, uh, he was guarding Queens, they call it, which is the Royal Box and stuff like that at Horse Guards. And uh, they all got told, right, Sunday morning, be up at 7 o'clock, you're all going to be in the James Bond film. So he he then spent the next couple of hours um, being being an extra in the James Bond film on his horse and stuff like that. Um, so that, he was really pleased. He got the chat with Daniel Craig, um, <laughs> met, met met the Bond girl. Um, and, but he did say it was quite awkward because they spent two hours doing a five-minute scene. And the reason why it was failing was the Bond girl couldn't cross the road in the right time. So he was saying what the what the scene is, is you've got the household cavalry sort of clip-clopping along the road like they do, and then the bong girl has to um, 
like walk across the road in front of the horses, but not look as though she's running across the road or slowing down. So it's just like looking in front of the horse normally. But that was really difficult because the household cavalry don't slow down for anyone. And if you're in the way, they'll run, they'll run you over. <laughs> so she knowing that would, as soon as she got near the horses, suddenly scoot out of the way. She's and her self-preservation's r- kicking in. Yeah. That's understandable. But yeah, I mean, I can guess it wouldn't be exactly fun playing chicken with, what, a squad of 10 or something like that, horse, horse guards? Well, that's right. I mean, these, these horses are just over six feet tall. Mm. Um, you know, they're huge things, really. And they, yeah, and, but they've they're, they got orders. Don't, you, you do not stop for anyone. Um, I mean, he felt really bad because he was in the guard box during the week. And he felt really bad because he had to shout at the tourists, which he enjoys to tell them to get out of the way. <laughs> yes. But if they don't get out of the way, you just walk through them. So there was some, some old guy um, taking pictures and stuff like that, and he warned him about three times, get yeah. out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way. Make way for and the people garden tapping, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, people were tapping him, the, you know, the old guy on the shoulder saying, move. And the guy would completely ignore it, but mm-hmm. Pete was under order, so he just marched through and knocked him out of the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand how. So he felt really bad about, you know, knocking over this old guy, but yeah, what you got to do? You know, it's it's they're guarding a military installation, and the tourists are there just as the the decoration. Silly question, but this is almost sounds like something that people would that the military would do as a test for you. You know, can you be a complete git to some doddering old fool who won't go out your way even though you're meant to? No, because when they have to do it, they all, they all, they all feel bad about it because of they do. part of what they're told is that you you know you are representing Britain when you're yeah. on duty outside that guard box or on the horse. You are representing Britain and the Queen, so you don't want to give a negative, horrible impression to people. But on the other hand, you're supposed to, you're there to guard the Queen and her property and the nation's property. So yeah. He, he, <laughs> He hasn't yet. He hasn't yet had to get his bayonet out on anyone, um, mm-hmm. but he is looking forward to <laughs> a chip off the old block. There, isn't he? Well, I did think it. I did, I did think it was funny um, when, but yeah, he's 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 he's, he's, he's loving it, and the, the opportunities they get there. You know, for an eighteen-year-old to be in a Bond film and being in you know all the stuff he gets to do. You know, I can't really fault it in terms of life. Um, but he, and the thing was, he wasn't even allowed to get Daniel Craig's autograph because they've got nowhere to hold a notepad and pen in the uniform. That seems a bit of an oversight. Well, yeah, because I did ask, can't you like keep it under your helmet like the policemen are supposed to do their sandwiches? But apparently not. Say, so what do the officers and NCOs do? Though? Well, they they are send, don't they? But yeah, so anyway, that that was his fun. Um, Am I in the room? Yeah. So yeah, I've had quite a busy couple of weeks, really. Um, looking forward to Lave Gone, of course, which is mere days away. Just got a shed load of personal stuff to sort out before then. Whether I manage to get it all done, I don't know. Because uh, uh, oh yeah, sorry, the mini mini Shan is now is also now in Norfolk uh, for a few weeks with the cavalry uh, riding 
on the beach with the horses and the, the sea and basically on a you know a beach holiday for three weeks. It's a hard life, that isn't it? I don't know if you if you ever seen that Queen's Cavalry program and mm. know what they go through. I mean, it's like oh, the oh god, I'm, yeah. He spent what was it thirteen hours a day for four days get, just polishing his boots to get them up to spec. Bloody hell! And and I know that they've got to look after the um oh they've got to look after all their horses' gear as well, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, both both sides. So even the sides you can't see have to be polished and. Why are we showing Ship of Thieves from Gra- from Grant? It could be Susie playing, couldn't it? <laughs> uh, I think I should be sending you my feed again. Uh, Mac, are we having a beluga party? Yeah, I'm currently outside of Lave Station in my, in my most marvellous beluga uh, looking at the planet Lave. So, come join me. Okay, okay, let me just... I want to see if I can... It's quite a decent exploration ship now, the Beluga. Oh, the Beluga's a really good exploration oh, ship. Oh, it's, it's greatly improved since they've... Um, it, was, it was terrible when that slot was restricted because the, the first time I got one was the first Christmas Carrier's Convoy. And I, I realised it was because the, there wasn't the Guardian stuff then either and you couldn't put a decent fuel scoop in it. And I realised it was going to be a real chore to get out to Colonia in this thing. But I was going to do it anyway. And then I got ganked going to Shinras Desra, so I got, I got an Anaconda instead. Um, but, but, but now it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a way better ship now, way, way better. So unfortunately, I, uh, unfortunately, I have the ship now because uh, my distant world ship, which I should actually still be flying, I should be in Colonia in it right now, met with a slight accident. Oh yeah. Yes, it was. Um, uh, oh boy, it was uh, basically. I was. I know. I estimate I had a billion worth in exploration data and all the first oh, discovered tags mm-hmm. and i was just stopping for the night it was actually exactly two weeks ago it was after live after listening to the live radio show live for a change so i'm not normal so it's now, ben's anyway so so it's ben's fault yeah <laughs> i was i just thought well the show i listened to Wotherspoon's news report i'm gonna land and shut down for now i could actually see the colonial nebula i was mm. at, i was about five kylies out and anyway, I found this planet, uh, and so the planet stuck the. I think, yeah, I did. I stuck the night vision on, leveled out. Oh, I've got a bit of sync right here. Oh, it doesn't matter. I've got shields. I'll just, I'll just sort of light a break. And then my ship was exploding all around me, and I felt like oh, such an God. idiot. And that was that. Yeah, I think in that circumstance, you would be legitimate in going to frontier, sort your game out please restore me, because I think they probably would. Oh, Frontier definitely would. Yeah, probably. I decided to own it, though. It was uh, it was one of those things, because it was purely down to my own stupidity. I mean, I thought, even as I was heading towards the ground, I thought, do I need to put pips and shields? Nah, just leave it. <laughs> Never assume. Are you Never here as Holly Doodle, by the way? The, the, the one improvement I'd make to the Beluga is I want to give it extendable wings. I thought the wings do go. Oh no, they wiggle up and down, don't they? When you no, I want even wider. I want even bigger wings on it. Right. <laughs> what I can't believe with the beluga is how good it's yours. Oh, for the size of it, it's it's very it's maneuverable. Brilliant. 
Um, actually, yeah. talking about the Beluga, um, and sorry for putting you on the spot here, Ventura, but have you seen Commander Beetlejude's picture for Doctor Toxic? No. I haven't seen so, um So Beetlejude, Doctor Toxic does a lot of audio editing for both ourselves and for Sagittarius Eye. Yes. And Beetlejude went off and did a mashup between Audacity and his Beluga. Okay. And it looks amazing. I haven't seen it. I have. I need to have a look out for it. Um, it's really, really good. Good. I'll have a look out for it anyway. Yeah. Right. Have we have we spoken to Mac about what, what he's up to, or shall I say say my things? No, we haven't got that far yet. I don't think. Okay, Mac, do you want to go before me, or do you want me to go before you? Sure, because I've I've said about half it about me blowing up. So anyway, I've been back in the bubble, um, flying around, trying to remember how to dock, uh, trying to remember how to fly missions, trying to remember how to do combat missions, and nearly losing my uh, fighter pilot who I've had now for oh probably two years. But anyway, he survived, mm-hmm. so that's good. Um, <laughs> I really do need to fix that. <laughs> Agreed, you know, but... I'm. It, it's it's always a year and you're down to eighteen percent. Holly, I think. Oh, I don't, don't want to lose. I don't want to lose my fighter pilot. I've, I've. He's been. He's been my loyal servant for the last God knows how long. Anyway, so. Um. But yeah. Quite so, a amount of money I've I've deliberately wasted on my crew. Yeah, I looked at my my crew's pay, and he's up to like half a billion. So far. he could he could just he should just go out and get his own damn ship. I think. Anyway, um, I actually broke the game because i paid my crew so much i i caused an overflow error on their <laughs> i think it was a 32-bit integer oh dear so it wrapped around it was probably 32-bit signed integer so it yeah. wrapped around at two billion it, or something so it came back uh, with a negative number in front of it but unfortunately it wasn't a, it was it was a display error so they weren't actually giving me my money back but oh but it, 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 it was kind of like Money is so meaningless in this game. Let's see how much I can pay my NPC crew. You know, kind of <laughs> thing. But I, I, I won't reveal the figure because it's it's completely ludicrous. Well, if you wrapped around, that kind of says something right there. Yeah, so other than that, out of game, uh, other gaming stuff. I mean, you may not be entirely surprised to learn that I'm an enormous train nerd, so I've been playing Train Simulator as well. So um, I finally, I have finally driven the entire route from Penzance to Paddington. <laughs> are you into simulating trains, or are you into like model trains? As- yeah, well, more than it's having the space for them, but it's 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 just a it, it's just so I can drive my favourite locomotives and things like that. There's there's a really good Armstrong powerhouse have done a really good class thirty seven diesel loco, and it sounds absolutely brilliant. And you can you can sort of roll the windows down and listen to the <laughs> listen to this big twelve cylinder diesel behind you like thumping away. It's brilliant. <laughs> anyway. Um, that's that's probably that's probably about it for that's probably about it for my. Uh, no, I was going to ask what, what did you think of the James May uh, Hornby program? I don't think I've seen that one. I've seen this is a James May constructs uh, reconstructs things. Series. No, what he did, he did. I can't remember the exact name of the show, but basically, 
uh, he um, he he went into Hornby as they were restructuring and about to launch a lot of their new locomotive ranges and uh, a few of the ethics kits. So it, it was how they were working to try and turn things around because Hornby was is still having quite a rough time of it. So it was all about that. Oh no, I haven't. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen that. Uh, there, there's another James May series which is uh, pretty good, where he goes. He basically has a load of something taken apart. Oh, the reassembler, isn't it? Yeah, he's he's done like a Suffolk cult lawnmower, one of those Kenwood mixers, a uh, bass guitar, a telephone, an old rotary dial telephone, and a few other things. They're, they're pretty good. Um, I think you can get them on YouTube, probably. See, I think what they sh- they should have done is given the stuff to people apart. Okay, right, put it back together again. So we take it apart and then he puts it together? Yeah. Like a, like a You'd have no chance. <laughs> I think that could, that could definitely work. Um, right, Yannick, and I'm right. I will apologise now, because, and I don't want to call you Yannick's, but I probably will, because I know you're not Yannick's, and I know you're Yannick, and I know you're your own It be the person. first time, to be honest. So I've had that a few will, times over the years. I will apologise now. And we know that you're not Yamix, we know you're not uh, Latvian and then everything like Yeah, he's Latvian, isn't he? So I think we, so, we, yeah. we know that, but I'll apologise now anyway, just in case. <laughs> Fair do. Uh, so anyway, why don't you introduce yourself and say a wee bit about yourself and why you're here tonight. Okay, as you say, I'm Commander Yannick, not Yamix. But um, I'm probably best known as an explorer in Elite Dangerous, and I've been doing this for a while now, pretty much since the launch of the game in uh, late 2014. And um, I'm well, probably best known also as an organiser of expeditions, and this Apollo 11 one is my most recent creation, and obviously why I'm doing it, because it's the 50th anniversary of you know the Apollo 11 moon landing, so it seemed like the perfect time to do another one like this. I mean, because I have my sort of, you know, unique selling point, as it were, compared to sort of other expedition organizers, I tend to do sort of historically themed expeditions. And this is just, you know, the most obvious one because it just presented itself, you know, in reality anyway. Yeah. So actually talking, so that actually segues nicely into what I've been up to. So in real life, I did go and see the Apollo 11 movie on Saturday. And my God, what a beautiful film that was. Oh yes, I'm looking forward to seeing this one a great deal. I'm going to see it this coming Thursday, so uh, uh, yeah, that's one to watch. Are you seeing it in IMAX? Um, I don't know what the quality of the cinema actually is. I just saw that it's on a, my local one, and right. you know, whichever way round, it's on a big screen, <laughs> so that's going to be cool. Yeah, no, I, I was lucky in that I was able to find a showing nearish to me that was doing it in IMAX, and oh my god! I mean, you know, spoilers, they get to the moon. <laughs> but the See, fact- I wouldn't have ended it that way. I, I wouldn't have ended it that way. I would have, I, I would have got the moon landing and the one small step for man, whatever, and then panned mm. out to show a giant warehouse. And Stanley Kubrick in the background, naturally. Um, yeah. But the fact that it's all one to one, obviously, because it's real bloody footage. The it was just like stupid details like the grain of the duct tape as it's flapping in the wind from holding down the corner of some electrical wire on the on the tower. 
you know, you just like it's a stupid thing to go wow about, but I really is like wow, that's awesome. Yeah, well, it's this thing. It's quite amazing, you know. It's all sort of chemical analog film. The actual resolution of it is amazing. I know they've sort of digitized it and everything, but people forget in that era, such you know high resolution cameras were available. Okay, they're yeah. frequently in the hands of the military. It's true, and filmmakers. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's just military. Yeah. Well, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an so definitely. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, the, the the there's a you can tell there's a massive, massive difference, obviously, between the footage that was shot on the ground and the footage that the guys had in the cockpits with them. Let alone the footage that was probably captured by recording of a recording of a recording of the broadcasts from wherever they happened to be at that time, whether it was the moon or. Mm-hmm. Going between the two is just who knows. Um, yeah. you know, there's some definite potato quality in there as well. I think that terrible quality at live feed at the time is the, almost 100% the reason why there are these huge moon landing conspiracies. It's because the footage looks grainy, ghostly, and very yeah. dark and sort of very poor black and white. Is you know, people thinking, is that real? But then you look at the later ones, you think, yeah, that's completely real. Yeah. Well, uh, the world didn't turn black and white until the early 60s. <laughs> uh, the world didn't turn colour in the early 60s anyway. Oh, I mean, we did have colour stills, didn't we? Or, you know, some oil paints giving us some nice textures even <laughs> and things like that. Uh, uh, but actually, I mean, some of, the, some of the photography that they took, and then they went off and, you know, they took the decent photos and did some nice things with them. You know, like, they sort of did a little montage of going, like, from one zooming out, zooming out, zooming out, and you know, turn that into you know, d- turn that into sort of a a bit like a, a gif kind of thing or a gif, depending if you want to pronounce it wrongly. So, how does the film compare to First Man? I I haven't actually se- I haven't seen this new Apollo Eleven film, but I I did see First Man on I was actually on a plane. Hmm. Um, it's the First Man thing is it probably depends on what kind of film you're looking for. If you're looking for the aerospace angle, it, First Man isn't the thing you want to watch. It's all it's all human interest stuff, basically. And it's, to me, I would say it over-egged the pudding. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was too angsty. I mean, if you read books like The Right Stuff and things like that, there was, I mean, there was quite a lot of nervousness on behalf of the families of these, you know, people and their test pilots and eventually... Uh, eventually astronauts but it i think it, just, it kind of overdid the angst a bit the family angst um but um yeah, it definitely felt go. dramatized see yeah, i i an extent i i love that period of history um certainly because well, just the whole just the whole thing because there was such a sense of optimism and pride in what you were doing or certainly that's how it appeared that I don't know, it just seemed to capture something, you know, because I, I was fortunate to go around the uh, the Kennedy Space Center um, in Florida, and you thought, well, you get all the all the stuff around it, and you know, even the even the guys who were making the simplest things took pride in what they were doing because they were pushing mankind forward. Well, that's and, the thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I read an interesting um, thing the other day that apparently if they tried to build 
the Saturn V nowadays, they couldn't do it because the techniques required for the welding and to get the thing so it would still fly aren't, doesn't, don't exist anymore. The people who learned those skills died off and didn't hand them on because of tools and whatever, whatever, whatever. So they couldn't actually make the Saturn V again because the people who had the skills are gone. Yeah, no, not in the way they made might, it. We'd wind up 3D printing the engines or something like that, wouldn't we? Well, exactly, your computer-aided manufacturing some techniques as well. So, yeah, now, that is true in that sense. Obviously, you have to make a sort of new version of something similar, but it would never be exactly the same. But you're you right. It's like, Sorry, finish. No, I was going to say, you're right. It's like 400,000 people worked on the Apollo program, and that's literally an army of people, and all of them took unbelievable pride because, as you say, it's, it's fascinating and it's an amazing thing to do, even if you were the most junior person, the guy in those screwed bolts on or something, on the production for the most marginal component. You could, that, that, that's a job that has pride, you know, even if you're not, you know, super genius. Yeah, and I, I do, I mean, I'm a bit critical of modern society, I guess, but you can just imagine people whinging about using the wrong sort of bolts that weren't, <laughs> I don't know, that, you know the sort of thing that you got, you know, they, they were sourced from, I don't know, the, the, I, I can just see the amount of whinging that would go on. I mean, if, if they could use whinges as rocket fuel, we'd be in Mars by now, I tell you. It'd be. <laughs> what worries me, though, a wee bit is we've got, like, we've, we've got the stuff, say, with the space launch system, which... Mm-hmm. I guess theoretically could put a man on the moon. Yes, I think it could. Um, yeah, I, I think if we ever, but that has been designed, 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 and I think what the Apollo era gave us was just shut the fuck up and build the damn thing. Well, there is a, class- a lot easier though, if you actually have a budget that's actually that large. Oh, God, yes. And you have that much your concentration and political sort of willpower behind it. Because Apollo at the moment, you all know this anyway, I think, but NASA's budget has been salami-sliced so many times. And yeah. So the SLS itself has been delayed so much, mostly because of the funding has been cut at almost every turn. It's kind of remarkable the project's still even alive. Mm. And there's there's also the other thing with the political will. Uh, I I have a I have a small claim to fame, and I'm going to name drop here. But mm-hmm. I I actually used to live in I lived in Houston for six years, and I actually my my office was literally across the road from Johnson Space Center. I mean, you could oh, see the rocket park and the visitor center. Mm-hmm. You actually see the fact that well, the Saturn V stacks now now indoors, but at the time it was actually outside. You could see that I could see the Saturn V. It was going to be Apollo 18. It was laid out on its side um, in the visitor center. And apparently some some, some owls had uh, made their home in it as well. <laughs> but yeah, Apollo 18 was, was the one they can't, they decide they don't want to see, yeah. even though it was all assembled and ready to go. Um, but um, of course, it was like, we had astronauts crawling out of our ears down there. I mean, it's like, oh, another astronaut. Oh, yeah. No, my dear. It was like... If they were crawling out of your ears, would that have been inspected by space worms yes. or something like that? Yeah. Anyway, so, but I, because I, I was in a, I, I, I actually learned to fly out in Houston. There was the flying club I was in. Uh, Gene Kruntz was a member of the same flying club. He used to, I, I went down there. I went, did a bit of solo practice in this 
little old Cessna 172 and walked down there. And there was Gene Krantz coming back from doing his bit of flying in this little, this this very small aircraft. And um, anyway, he t- he actually did a talk at the flying club, which of course is very well attended because we publicised it and people from miles around came. Um, and somebody asked, well, "What's the difference now?" I mean, I mean we've we did all this stuff back then because uh, I think the main thrust of his talk was, you know, basically sort of risk management and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it was, I think it was Apollo 14 was the instant he had, it got struck by lightning uh, on mm-hmm. launch and you, you could hear the recording and he had a bunch of information about this stuff. But um, one of the questions that came from the audience says, well, why, why aren't we doing this now? Why, why are we drawing the horizons? And he says, well, it's basically political will. We've become very risk averse. I mean, back then it was kind of, we had to beat the Soviets. And it, it was literally do or die. So, so you've got to remember, I, I think I, I mentioned this in the uh, Sajai article. It was when Sput- it, it was like 10 years after Sputnik 1 launched uh, Armstrong was second foot on the moon. It was in, it was incredibly fast. Um, so, uh, and it was it was almost like crisis mode. There, there's huge political will just to get it done. And once they'd done it, it was like it all evaporated, and things have become steadily more risk averse. And mm. although well, it's, it's a hard it's a hard thing to argue against, isn't it? Why are you spending billions and trillions of dollars? on going to the moon when there are people in poverty and in real suffering on Earth. And that's a very hard argument to counter, isn't it? It's not as hard an argument as you would think, though, because I think a lot of people are inspired by almost every walk of life. And it's easy well, argument are, to make, but... say that... Yeah, but it's an easy argument to make, which the one I always make is, like, it's not an either-or situation. It's not a case of soul poverty or going to space. It's we have to do both. As a species, we must solve both. Otherwise, we're just stagnant and or heartless, you know. So either either situation is bad, and go stop going to space will not solve poverty, but we can't stop going to space because of our very nature. We have to have something to aim at, and we have to have a higher goal in mind. And that's what I always say: it isn't an either or situation. It's an absolute must to do both. Yeah, and I think I've heard that, um, particularly with uh, things like the Indian space program. Uh, they're saying, oh, India's got terrible poverty problems. Why are they even doing this? Because this is costing a fortune, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the thing is, what one thing it'll do is it'll develop a engineering base in India, which will provide, you know, and, and all that will flow from that. You've got all the supply chains and dependencies from this engineering base. So it helps to in some small way it is actually doing both things at the same time you know not only building building satellites and what have you is building the engineer engineering base but it's also providing the jobs and the work you know sort of useful work for people to do and building the economy at the same time so it's it is actually helping to reduce uh, the the poverty problems they have i mean it's something has anyone seen any figures on okay fine the Apollo program and all of the space programs cost this much, but this is a this is how much money we got back from doing it. This is how much this is the job. This is the, you know, ten how, to how, one, how, I think. <laughs> ten to one in favor of every dollar spent on Apollo generated ten dollars for the U.S. economy. Something of that yeah. kind of order, anyway. I mean, obviously that that's not money you're pissing away. That's no. money that you're. 
paying your engineers, your designers, your your your, your people who are busy, hard working, and doing all of these things. I, I and we're giving them to Americans, not to Chinese people, to go off and build mi- microwaves. I just want my space buttons, really. <laughs> hmm. Oh. If you'd have told me in 1980 that by the, by the year 2020 we, we would not have gone to Mars and would not have a moon base, yeah, I'd have thought you were being, you're being stupid. I mean, of course we're going to go to Mars. Of course we'll have a moon base. You know, year 2000. Um, we were brought up on the optimism of sci-fi. 2001, we? for God's sake, Grant, uh, Grant Shan. Yeah, exactly. We, we were brought up on that optimism, or certainly I was. And, you know, I, I, I sat eyes wide open watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos and all mm-hmm. the sort of stuff like that. And I think that's probably why Elite took my imagination so much back in 1984, because I was in space and I was in shit and I couldn't get there yet. But in back in 1984, I sure as heck knew it would be at some point. But hey, you know. Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody take a drink. But I mean, that's something... the thing. <laughs> I mean, we could have gone to Mars. We could have gone, had moon bases, but especially the moon bit is very easy in comparison because the technology was already there. Mm-hmm. And some of you probably know this anyway, but NASA had all these follow on plans to Apollo, like permanent moon bases, like, you know, permanent space stations after Skylab, etc., etc. And then the Mars missions after that. But guess what? The money was ever forthcoming. So it's never been the sense of the engineers didn't think they could do it. I mean, if they did, the Apollo money continued through the system, we'd have probably been at Mars by, what, the mid-90s, if not earlier. So really what we're saying is that if you really want the space program to take off, we need God to fire a few asteroids at the Earth. <laughs> I guess you can move. I mean, one way it sounds of jaded, people. but... I'm actually quite glad in some respects that China and India are busy doing their thing because it's, because it's giving an America a kick up the ass to, even though it's Trump, oh, yeah. he's still getting that kick up the ass to push towards going to the moon and you know going to Mars. And whilst I'm not a fan of the, the idea of this sort of space station that he's wanting to put, you know, Going between the Earth and the Moon, or something like that. The I'm I'm not a fan of that idea, I, but the fact we're actually doing something outside of low Earth orbit makes me very happy. And even if it is a stupid idea, I'll accept a stupid idea. I'll accept a Moon tax if it means that we actually go off and get our asses out of low Earth orbit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. how how cool was a SpaceX landing with both those boosters and oh, the same time? Sci-fi come to life. Yeah. I mean, but that wasn't a government, was it? That, that was a private. No, that's private. But again, kicking people up the ass to get things going, you know. No matter who it is, it's good. The more activity in space, the better for everybody. I mean, and to be honest, oh, another good argument for everyone. If you ever want to, to prove about space, what have you, take someone's phone out and say that everything about this phone, more or less, <laughs> comes from space technology and yep. say that oh, if you don't like space, give me your phone. <laughs> Because it's yeah, all even the phones way that we had, it. yeah, even the phones that we had twenty years ago were basically impossible without space stuff. Exactly. Hell, for that matter, oh, all yeah. modern PCs as well, all the miniaturization, miniaturization mm-hmm. stuff. You know, the only reason we did that was because we needed to get things lighter. Exactly. 
And of course, you've got things like GPS and GLONASS and Galileo and whatever the Chinese one is called as well. So you've got the, and we use those, we use GNSS every day, not just for navigating, but things like time sources and things like mm-hmm. that. We, we use them for all sorts of stuff. But actually, it's, it's funny we're talking about uh, computer technology now because um, there is a really good series of videos by a guy called curious mark uh, who's restoring well him and a bunch of others are restoring an apollo 11 uh, an apollo guidance computer oh wow um which is it's funny it's it, it it's obviously old tech but there were some pri- some surprisingly advanced things about it at the same time but they've they've actually got to the point now they've he i actually just i just watched the 14th episode tonight they've, they've been doing it for a few months um it starts in a hotel room in houston uh, they've actually got the mains. They've actually got the CPU running. Um, they've got a whole bunch of equipment to basically test it. They've, they have uh, they have a couple of issues. They don't have a original. That basically the ROM, the read-only memory. They don't have one of those. But they do have a simulator, um, which is actually back from the era. Which actually this was episode fourteen was about was getting this thing working. It's called the. Uh, the rope memory simulator that's that's what passed rom in those days it was basically um wires thread through um through ferrite rings to basically store the the program data whether whether the wire went through the ring or not uh indicated whether there was a one or a zero there but yeah they've they've had uh, done a bunch of episodes on this they're basically this this AGC that's been stored for many years, and they thought, well, let's get this thing running again. So, he's uh, the little group's been doing a bunch of stuff. There's actually a guy from SpaceX, one of the electrical engineers, um, who's working on it's one of the SpaceX guys. Um, but yeah, he's uh, they've I think, yeah, they, they've got the CPU actually fully running now. So they had the latest episode. They actually were running a program uh, through the right memory emulator. Um, uh, they've got a problem with what basically what we'd call RAM, which is basically core memory. So it's like basically the, the memory in, in the 1960s, so to make a, a RAM, you again, it was it was wires thread through magnet, ferrite rings, and you stored a mag, you, you either magnetized them or they weren't magnetized to store it, to, to store bits of data. As you can imagine, this is um, not, by today's standards, it's not very dense. I think the AGC had uh, something like f- equivalent of 4K. I think it's t- like two killer words. They were 16-bit words, and it had uh, 204080, so about 4K of RAM, I think it was. But there was a – basically, these things are potted up. In fact, there was a there was a controller for this memory. They found that was bad as well. Um, but they, they're all potted in epoxy, um, these uh, ferrite memory med- modules. And they going through because what they, he was doing is just basically going through with a multimeter, just testing each one for continuity. Uh, because obviously, if, if it's a wire going from one pin to another, you can just use use a, a regular old fifteen quid multimeter to check whether there's continuity and whether it's likely to work or not. And lo and behold, a few episodes back, they found a broken wire. And because this whole thing's potted in epoxy, it's it's kind of difficult to get at. 
And looking back at the historical data, they found that these modules all tended to fail in one specific place on this specific wire. So they thought, well, we'll x-ray it. We'll see if it's actually failed how they failed back in the day. And they x-rayed it. The wire looked intact. Um, so they thought, well, that ain't it. So then they did something called time, di time division reflectometry, which sounds very technical but basically what it basically what it is i mean we're all used to like dc and low frequency ac whereas if you if you've got an open circuit nothing happens and if you've got a short circuit you get lots of magic smoke coming out well if you crank the frequency up into radio frequency well you you've basically it, the the wave going the the wave going down a piece of wire behaves like any other wave like a sound wave or a water wave and it'll reflect off discontinuities so if there's a broken wire if you send a sufficiently high frequency in other words very short pulse in this case when the pulse reaches the break in the wire it literally just bounces straight back it reflects off the end and you can time you can see how long it takes for the reflections to come back to figure out how far how far along the break is now of course the speed of light is very fast even in a wire so you have to have some pretty a pretty short pulse and some pretty good equipment to um in a short piece of wire to actually figure out the distance so anyway they did that and they discovered it was that the break was actually deep within the modules so basically it's it's irretrievably um it's it's basically irretrievably dead so I don't know what they're going to do about it. If 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 it were me, I would, and I think that well, they've done this kind of thing with, with the um, some of the test gear uh, they've done. I would basically build an emulator that would fit in the same slot, and then go around begging museums if we could swap our Duff one for for one of their working ones. So anyway, we'll we'll see what happens with that. But anyway, they've they've got the CPU working, and it's a, it's a great series of great series of videos so if you just search for curious mark m-a-r-c on youtube you'll find this i think it's curious mark it's not curious dave is it no it's curious mark um you'll you'll find this this series of videos about the apollo guidance computer which curious you, george isn't it <laughs> no no <laughs> certainly not curious bungle anyway um yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it's Curious Mark. He's, uh, but anyway, it's it's a, it's a it's it's an excellent series and it's still ongoing. So if you've got any interest in in old computers or even new ones, it's it's worth watching. Uh, I'm writing a thing, Sam. No, I was going to say if you've got a few pennies spare and you want to celebrate the um, moon landing, one of the ways of doing so is Ravel have issued a 1 to 96 scale Saturn V completely lunar module and stuff, and it's over a meter tall. Oh, oh that sounds good. And, and, yeah. then the, uh, and then there's the Lego version as well. Which... you got the Lego version, you got the Lego oh, the Lander as well, haven't they? Yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. Um, what I was going to ask, and I'm going to sneeze, Am I right in thinking that the guidance computer is... Is that an analog computer, or is it just some of the navigation stuff that's analog? No, the guy, the AGC it was a digital computer. In fact, it was one of the first, if one of the first, if not the first, to use integrated circuits. And second, I think, behind Gemini, um, but yeah, you're right, fundamentally. <laughs> yeah, it basically, the ICs in it, uh, I think they were three gates... Nor uh, three, three. The, I think each package had 
it certainly had more than one, maybe two, maybe I, I don't remember how many. I don't remember off the top of my head how many it yeah. had, but it basically it's basically three. I think they're three input NOR gates, and well, sorry NAND gates, and you can make any other gate out of a NAND gate basically. So the basically how how all these chips are wired together, and they they look like modern small outline IC surface mount chips. Uh, so. If if you just had a random one on the table, you'd think it's just a modern, you know, like medium scale integration logic. But actually, it's it's quite a bit earlier. I think it was probably it was probably even diode transistor logic. Probably wasn't even TTL. I don't think TTL came out till the seventies. But yeah, it was it it was all integrated circuit based. It was it was digital. Uh, it ran something like it. It was uh, a couple of hundred kilohertz, I think, was it was clocked at, um, which was probably blistering for the time. But of course, now not so much. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was basically built out. They they had this one standard logic, or it was probably it wasn't standard then. It was they probably built for them, uh, and they they built essentially all the the, the CPU out of out of. Um, individual basically medium scale integration logic uh, which was absolutely brand new and cutting edge at the time the the other interesting thing about the computer is uh, at the time like things like connectors weren't standardized i mean even you know th even things like rs232 is still years away and one of the challenges they've had in restoring this thing is you can't get the connectors anymore so they got these these huge like bet you know like 100 and something odd pin connectors but uh, the company that um, this YouTuber actually works for is makes connectors. So guess what? They've actually gone. They've got the original engineering drawings of <laughs> the connectors and how the pins are assembled, and they've actually custom made a bunch of Apollo era connectors for this project. Um, the company's called Samtech, I think. Yeah, just one of these connect uh, connector making companies and other things so yeah that was that was one of the, the uh, things they had to overcome there's also a there's another person uh her name's fran and i can't remember what the name of her youtube channel is but she's if actually that's, um oh she's vintage space she do, I don't know. She does all sorts of stuff with old electronics, um, including things like Nixie tubes and Decatrons and all this kind of stuff. But one her big project, which she's been at for probably quite a while now, is building an Apollo Disky, which was the display and keyboard unit. But so the, the thing is, if you watch like the the Apollo thirteen movie, the thing with the uh, the the little keypad and the seven segment. Uh, then they're not LEDs; they're actually electroluminescence. But she she's building a as faithful as possible reproduction of the um, Apollo Disky, and uh, she's got some videos where she went to one of the archives and got to take an actual proper Apollo era Disky apart to see what was inside. Um, and it, it it's funny because the the, the the technology, for, for instance, now to keep digits lit up, you have some memory, you know, some just ordinary semiconductor memory to store whatever, whatever you're trying to display on a an LED or an LCD or whatever. But back then, it was it was done with incredibly tiny relays, um, and hundreds of them, 
and they were all expensive. I mean, this thing must have cost a fortune to build back then, and it's even more expensive now because you can't get, you can't actually get. Nobody makes these relays, so you're trying to scratch around off people who've got like new old stock, and they're always selling them on eBay for an absolute fortune. But um, the, the, these things are actually proper electromechanical switches, and they just look about the size of transistors. Um, but yeah, the 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 disky itself is another kind of marveling technology of the era. Um, so yeah, they, they were they were they, those videos are well worth watching. I'm just trying to I'm, tr I'm trying to remember. But if you if you search on YouTube for Fran and Apollo disky, which is spelled D S K Y, you'll probably find them. Paul Archer is suggesting Fran from uh, the Twitch chat is asking if it's Fra Fran Blanche. Yeah, that I, that name certainly. I think it's Fran Blanche. I think that name rings a bell. And yeah, sorry, um, Yannick just corrected me on Discord that Vintage Space is um, Amy to tell. Um, is that is that how I pronounce his name? But yeah, yeah, it's um, it's always AST Vintage Space. I think that's the person you're talking about. I think it is. These, She's not done anything these, uh... for ages, though. Yeah, I think she's done a couple of videos in the last couple of months, but not as much as she'd done in you know previous she months. She used to do years, things but... like every week or something, wasn't it? It's a good channel. I think she actually did a Lego kit one recently about the lunar module we were just talking about. Okay. You know, the one that you build on the live stream. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's a good um, channel, that one. Anyway, so bring it into the expedition. How? What things are you guys doing for the expedition then? Well, fundamentally, it's quite similar to most other expeditions in the sense of explorers you know you go to waypoints usually interesting stars nebulae planets etc and um usually go to meetups as well i think that's one of the best elements of it is apart from seeing these sort of beautiful things in the galaxy you also get to meet other explorers and um you know mess around in srvs ship launch fighters and and do whatever in that regard you know it's there are various things that we have like you know, races uh, mountain climbing, cliff jumping, all kinds of shenanigans, really. But uh, I think most expeditions are kind of similar in that regard. It's just each one has a slightly different focus. Uh, but this what, one is just are, the there any, are there any things in this one that tie the locations to things to do with the Apollo missions? Only marginally. I mean, I think I've named most of the waypoints after something connected with Apollo 11. Mm. And uh, aside well, from going that, to Tranquility Nebula or something like that, sort of. Well, exactly. I mean, I'll bring up the the list in a second, but it's a it's basically, and also the final waypoint where we're going to celebrate the actual anniversary itself on the twentieth of the Apollo Eleven landing is we're trying to simulate the Earth Moon system as close as we can because everyone who's been to Sol in the game knows that you can't actually land on the Earth's moon in that. <laughs> and that obviously is a huge problem because, you know, it would be nice if Frontier had opened it up, but they never have. So unfortunately, that's not an option. And we want to land. There's no point in, like, staying in lunar orbit around because it's, it's, just, it's just not as interesting, is it? You want to land on, on something. Decided to go to somewhere that can simulate the Earth's moon as, yeah. uh, as best we can. Sham, could you imagine if that's the announcement at LaveCon that they've gone off and opened up the moon and we can see the landers <laughs> and everything like that? It'd be wonderful. It would change around doing quite a bit. <laughs> That'd be like the ultimate troll for Frontier, wouldn't it? I'd would. if if they did that, if they did that, I'd want a special mineral engineering material called cheese. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, only if we can get oh, Sulk awesome. as well. And you and, and and you land there, and you see the little Wallace and Gromit spaceships and things. There, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but am I right in thinking that your expedition, your it's not going to be one of these. We're jumping twenty thousand, uh, twenty thousand light years away. Blah blah blah. It's all fa- within. It's all fairly close yeah. to the bubble. Is that right? That is correct. I mean, deliberately, because it's the anniversary is so important to so many people, decided that it was sort of having, say, a conventional deep space expedition to keep it sort of to quite near bubble space, starting just outside it and ending about 6,000 light years away from the bubble. Okay. So, you know, it's, 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 a, so it's more of an inclusive thing than a lot of expedition. Not that we're exclusive people, we're not we're very inclusive as a community, but it's just a sense of, you know, the bar is deliberately, anyone who can fly out here who wants to be a part of an expedition, maybe hasn't before, you know, is willing to, to try. And obviously anyone who's been on expeditions before who also wants to celebrate the anniversary with us is welcome to come along. And I think that's the idea, really, to be as many people as possible, to be as inclusive as possible, considering this is such a sort of key space and, and just a bit of humanity, really, isn't it? It goes beyond the sort of typical space nerdery because yeah, so that, many other people you know, love the thing. That is what struck me about when I read about it, is, you know, I've been on Distant World too and all sorts of places like that, and if you wanted to dip your toe into player-led expeditions and see what the fuss is about, so to speak, then it's an ideal opportunity to do that. Well, exactly, yeah, that's what it was designed for. So, I mean, any recommended chips, or could you literally do this in a starter sidewinder? Uh, you could. I wouldn't recommend the starter sidewinder, but a slightly upgraded one, probably. I think someone asked me this, is like, what's the minimum light year range? I'm going to say about 20 light years. You can almost certainly do it in 20. Take you a bit longer, obviously. You can do you don't need in 20, usual. just about. Yeah. But this thing, you don't need like a 70 light year sort of condo, basically. You know, that's yeah. not necessary in this one. You can bring it if you like, but, you know, it's entirely up to you. So, yeah, most things can come along. It, it's not exactly say distant worlds or trying to cross the abyss or anything i was a bit disappointed actually in distant worlds too because when i first went across the abyss before distant distant world one that was when you really had to plot your route and thread your way through the needle of stars that you could scoop and for me that was a really special gameplay experience having that difficulty of plotting the route and making a wrong turn and going back and all the sort of stuff like that. But uh, when I did it in Distance World 2, it was just like being on the M6. I mean, yes, I had to keep yes, I had to keep an eye on my fuel gauge a bit to make sure I didn't jump through too many non-scoopable stars, but that was about it. There was no... I don't know. It, it just felt like we'd lost the wilderness and it had become a service station. Yeah, I felt that, too. I felt that there wasn't much wilderness. Because every... Almost every system was like fully mapped and fully discovered. It felt like almost being back in the bubble, just with longer. You had to do bigger jumps between systems. I mean, I, I wasn't in the ridiculously engine. I, mean, I was, I was in my castle, which had a forty-two light year jump range. So I did have to use a bit of jumponium to go to Saloma's Reach. The other thing I felt about Distant Worlds is when Distant Worlds actually ended, for me, that was kind of, well, it was halfway done. There was still a journey home, and I was doing this big route around the outer arm, and then I thought, oh, I'll cut into Cologne. Oh, is that the Voyager route back? No, this was this was going the other way, because I'd, I'd done the Minerva Centaurus expedition, which was around that side, and I thought, well, I haven't done the outer arm, so I'll go, this is going counterclockwise, or Widdishins. <laughs> um, uh 
and I thought, okay, I'll cut back into Colonia, and um, this is when the lithobraking incident happened. Um, but yeah, uh, for me, reaching reaching the or Slomo's reach or whatever, or, or, or and Beagle Point was kind of well, it's only really halfway. I've still got the rest of it to do, but there you go. But yeah, it did feel, it did feel like incredibly well trodden ground. It, it didn't feel it felt like I was. Yeah, it, it, as you say, it's like an M6 service station. It, this is probably also heightened just by the sheer number of people there. Uh, if you looked on EDSM, there were at one point there were about four times as many people uh, in the in that little sector of space than there were in Colonia. It was bloody hell. It, it, was, it was like there was like eight or nine hundred ships actually just in whatever that region is, you know, that, that little cutout you get up there. Um, I think to get the sense of wilderness back, you do need to go significantly above or significantly down the galactic plane. And basically, if you look at the EDSN map and avoid the well-trodden routes, there's still a lot of places undiscovered. I mean, I was speaking to uh, Nats right from the Hammers of Slough the other day. And um, she was really pleased because she'd managed to find a nebula no one else had been to. Um, and to find a nebula when that, that no one has found, I thought was quite a, quite a unique thing to do because uh, I thought they'd all been found, but obviously not. Yeah, I think there's still a few. There's probably some planetary nebulas that haven't been discovered. I've been trying to find an undiscovered AA-AH system, but uh i still haven't yet or well, i did find one on on the mce but that was one of these ones that's kind of near the axis so it instead of having instead of being super ma- you know, a supermassive system it had like a t-tory and that, that was about it in it um i, I suppose it counts as an aa dash ah but um i've i don't think i don't think i managed to tag a black hole yet so the, it's out there, but you just need to look for it and go out, go out of your way. I think. Uh, although to be to be honest, I never felt exploration was that dangerous or that difficult. As long as you have a certain set of rules that you kept to, you just wouldn't. Sorry if you, you lost your ship, but you just wouldn't. You, you don't take a planet to the face. <laughs> well, that's it. I think it can be dangerous, but as you say, only if you really stop paying attention or you become that bit over adventurous. I think sometimes it is complacency creeps in. And I think, especially if you're at the edge of the galaxy, you're trying to work through the sort of maze towards the end of your jump range, or you're trying to go to places that are that far out. You know what I mean? Those ones that it's very difficult well, it's, to a route at uh, all, even now. I mean, there's things so, like, I mean, it's stuff like I, I attempt planetary landings. Um, that are far more difficult in the bubble than I do when I'm out exploring. Like, if I'm out exploring, I would seldom land on a 2G-plus planet. But in, in the bubble, it's just kind of yeah, 2G-plus, whatever. And the mechanics are the same. I know I can land on 8G planets and whatever it is. I know I can do that. It's just the kind of risk versus reward calculation doesn't stack up for me. I mean, I have to admit, actually... When I'm out exploring, well, when I was out on Distant Worlds 2, or for that back on Johnson Jacks, I had one very bad experience with a bug where my ship got pancaked because of probably some rounding error or something, I don't know, but I wound up, I wound up spawning after logging back in in the middle of the planet. I then bounced up and down a lot and then got kicked 
several hundred meters off into space and just managed to recover. But basically, ever since then, when I've been out, I've never even, I've never actually stopped on a planet. Yeah, I've gone off and I've landed, but I've taken off again and I've actually logged off in the middle of nowhere, not even in orbit, just because I don't want to take that risk. I mean, I landed on a few high P worlds on distant worlds too, but again, it was it. I didn't do it as though I had to because I, I had all the materials I needed, and I, you know it's more about sightseeing than than needing to refuel or something like there. So, yeah, and again, maybe I, we're kind of like too too cautious and we fly like grannies, but it, it it's purely down to personal preference because I I know explorers. I landed on things I just didn't save. I just didn't log off there. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I always like to land on a planet like to bed down for the night and well apart from face planting one i haven't had a bad experience yet certainly not a bug experience i think that's a part of it isn't it It depends what your preference is because i tend to park my ship in orbit or at the edge of a system going out into deep space i don't know that's me being cautious or what have you but i think it is the thing about bugs at the back of my mind know how many bugs there have been to do planetary surfaces the only time I've ever asked Frontier, I didn't ask them to restore my account or anything like that, but the only time I moaned at them because of a bug was it was when they were supposed to have fixed the bug where if you logged down an asteroid field, you could peer right in the middle of an asteroid. Oof, yeah. And I lost my Corvette because of that, Oof. you know, once. I mean, it wasn't. It was a pain, but you know, the money was trivial, but um, I, I wrote to them saying, oh, by the way, I logged out outside the asteroid field because I knew it happens. I made sure I was out of mass lock of the asteroids. And when I logged in, all of a sudden, ship spinning around, blown up, and I'd landed in the middle of an asteroid. So I thought, well, I may as well report that as a bug because obviously it could adversely affect someone. Um, so I reported it, and they said, oh, thanks, Shan. Um, we've restored your account, et cetera, back. And I thought, yeah. oh, okay, thank you. But I didn't ask for it. No, I mean, how much of that is Frontier being... How much of that is being Frontier being Frontier? And you know, they will... You go off and sort of... You say something even remotely bad, even if it was a bug report, and they'll be like, here, take your ship back again. I mean, it might have had something to do with, I said, unless you restore my account, I will stand next to Sandra <laughs> and ask you questions for five hours at Lavecon. But <laughs> kidding. But, no, they just, they just kind of did it. And I thought, oh, I didn't ask you to do that, but thank you. So yeah. it was going to be nice, I think. Uh, should, we cover, should we wheel back and actually talk about what Frontier's been up to, or is there anything else? Actually, you guys want to tell us anything about the expedition? Before we wheel back onto Frontier, just where can they find you and things like that? Well, the easiest place to find us would be on, on EDSM on the Expeditions page that tells you all you need to know for signing up. And it's a quick one. This You just need to you know, apply via EDSM and then go to Discord and bang, you're there. Okay, okay. So dead simple then. And roughly how long is it going to... Well, it's from the... Is it from Thursday to the 20th? Is that right? Uh, it's from the 6th to the 20th, and the so 20th. it's a Saturday to Saturday, which is unusual for an expedition, but the anniversary kind of dictates when we end it. So, 
So are you doing anything special on the 16th then? Um, well, on the anniversary day itself, on the 20th, we will be doing something. Uh, well, the 20th special. is when they landed, but the 16th is when they yeah. took off. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about doing something for the 16th, possibly, but it's the the landing really where the sort of, you know, peace and resistance is. So. Mm. so anything else you want to say about it before we move back? Oh, and um, there's also, I think, was it up to 500 on the expedition? Um, 570 last time I checked. So, and thank you, Obsidian Ant, for doing that uh, wonderful video as well. That certainly has helped. Well, should we wheel back and talk briefly? Because last Thursday, Frontier went off and told us how they how they paint they painted their crate ships. Does, do we want to cover that, or we should not bother? I don't think I've seen that one, Monsieur Shan. Um, go ahead. I can't really say much apart from the fact that they did it. It looked pretty. Um, well, well, that's about as much as I was going to say, which I guess shows how exciting it really is. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, it was... I, I feel bad for saying this. It was definitely the weakest of the Discovery scanners that I've seen so far. Um, but that's possibly because I like the techie things and I like the numbers and I like the engineering, whereas this was much more the all the pretties and how they go through and do all the iterations and everything like that. Um, oh, well, it's interesting. But as I, I like the techie stuff. Yeah, you, you're the, like me. The best discovery scanner I think they ever did. Thargoids. Was the, Thar, was the Thargon swarms yes. and how they got the swarms to, to move. I love I mean, this. how they did that is completely genius. It really was. And, yeah, that was so cool. Yeah, but... One thing that I thought, though, about the the crate and the design one was, you know, we've I feel quite guilty now because we quite often go off and say that the oh it's just another reskin of the Phantom or it's just sorry it's just another reskin of the Chieftain or it's another reskin of the crate, and they were saying that even though. It's another mark of the crate, or it's another kind of phantom. Sorry, it's another kind of chieftain. It takes them almost as long, apparently, to do a to do the the crate phantom as it did to do the crate mark two, which really surprised me. That is surprising. Um, and it's basically because. They'll do this stuff and they use kit bashes to basically knock the basics out the out the part out the out sort of get the get the basic look and feel of it out. But after that, apparently everything is basically everything's bespoke. It sounds like. Oh, I can believe it. Um, I can believe it, but I have to. I mean, I feel quite guilty because I know I've gone off and said, "Oh, it's just they've they've taken the crate and." They've shoved a long engine on it instead of those two, those four big engines. Yeah, and they've got off and they've they've taken out the oh the fighter bay and they've made it shit, but they've made it really light and so it's awesome for exploring. Um, but the actual models are so different when you actually get down to doing the thing that I feel quite guilty about thinking that in the past. 
Well, logic would suggest they would have used like a base model and then just changed the differences for each one. But it is surprising if they said they really had done it from the ground up. I mean, it sounds, I, I, it sounds a bit like, okay. So getting into my own, into my own job here, but our, our architect wants everything to be abstract and generic. And then our business analysts say, well, we need to have this on the page and this on the page and this on the page and this on the page. Which goes off and takes the basic, well, you can just go off and knock a page up by giving it a name and saying what database is connected to. And it's like, no, all of a sudden we can't do that because the bloody business analyst wants all these other things in there. And so we have to build the whole damn thing from scratch, even though it looks identical to that one. And some of it, you can maybe copy and paste the patterns along. But there's not actually a lot of copy and paste even between the two of them. And I'm wondering how much of what Frontier do for their ships is kind is if I can relate to it in those terms, in terms that I understand from you know, from my own job. Um and it's just the tiny differences mean you can't do the things that you'd love to be able to do. And I don't know. You'd also be surprised how much work it turns out to be, even doing a fairly basic reskin. Um, I, I actually did this myself. I had, um, it was kind of simple, Joe. I, anyway, the, on Train Sim, there was this local master. I wanted to reskin it because in the real world, uh, GBRF had come up with this livery and they'd put it on a class pretty localizer. I thought, oh, that looks pretty. I'll, I'll reskin, I'll take one of the, the loco and reskits. It should just be, you know, it's just textures. So just load it up in in the GIMP and fiddle with the textures and mm-hmm. save it. And, and it took us a it took me about a week to do it in the end. And this is for and I mean, it's a loco. It's a box on wheels. It's it. There was no three. I didn't have to do any three D modeling or anything like that. The textures are basically flat because it's just flat colors and. Uh, I, I thought the biggest trouble I was going to have was finding the font for the uh, actual company logo, but it turns out it was Helvetica. I thought I'll try some fonts, because it's obviously a, a Sans 3 font. I'll just try and try a few fonts, see what, it, what it's close to, and then perhaps just trim it, you know, you know go through the... You know, trim pixels off here and there and i typed it and i thought hold on it is actually helvetica but yeah i spent about a week on this thing and it's it's like pretty much the simplest livery you can imagine on something that's basically a box on wheels it doesn't have all the complex little greebles that the crate has or anything like that so i can i can understand that some of these paint jobs are actually quite a lot of work to actually do um mm-hmm. and i think people i think people have a tendency to underestimate how much work just even just doing a simple set of textures can actually be especially when you've got to try and reload into the game make sure it looks all right because you you, you do it in the editor where it's all flat and then then you put it on the actual 3d object and you look and you realize you've actually what looked fine in the editor looks absolutely terrible in the game so you've got to go and tweak it so you do several iter- iterations of this to make it just so and before you know it a whole week's gone by um, but yeah, it's it, it's, it's you know, just doing a paint job was for a box on wheels was a surprising amount of work I discovered. Do you think they should have another paint job competition? Because it's been a while, hasn't they? Since they yeah, got that would be a great thing to have. 
So yeah, they, they definitely should do more of those kind of things. I was going to say, what's your guess for the Lacon skin for this year? <laughs> I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> um, crate Phantom. I was going to say, do we actually have a Lacon skin for the crate? I don't think we do, do we? I, um, actually, I can check that out. I don't think there's a Lacon skin for the crate. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was one of them. Um, Sorry for you of you listeners who aren't going to Lavecon, but ha! <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, let me. I'm bear with me two seconds. I'm just checking what we've got. Um, I'm loading up the the Lavecon skins page. So right, what did we get? So 2015, we got the Vulture. The Cobra Mark III, the Asp Explorer. 2016, the Anaconda, the Asp Scout, the Eagle, and the Furry Lance. 2017, the Type 9 Heavy, the Python, the Cutter. And we got a Hollow Me flight suit, which is basically an orange one. Yeah, the uh, Oh, and the Cobra Mark. And, and we got the Cobra Mark IV. Can't forget the Cobra Mark IV. Yes, you um, can. <laughs> oh, oh, that would oh, that would be really trolling, wouldn't it? To turn up with the Cobra Mark IV and the Lavecon. Um... Honestly, I don't mind the Cobra Mark IV. I know there's been that recently sad guy article about it, but seriously, I don't mind it. And last year we got the Type Ten and the Chieftain. Um, yeah, I, w- I think I, assuming we get one, and Frontier have not said we're gonna. I would not be surprised if we had a crate in there. Yeah, um, I think. Just... Just looking to the Cobra Mark IV for a minute, I always think the Cobra Mark IV is a little bit like the current generation of Mini. Okay. <laughs> because the original Mini, and to a certain extent the original version of the new Mini, it was little, it was light, it was nimble, it was quick, oh. and it was fun to drive. But the new ones are so bloated and fat any kind of semblance of connectivity and stuff with the road has gone out the window. And that's what the Cobra Mark IV is. It's a new generation Mini. Yeah, and I know what you mean about the new, the newer Minis. They, they are big cars, which is really quite weird. Here's a little, a, a little shocker for you. I actually had, when I was a student, I had an old Mini, you know, the, the original. Yeah. It was actually old than me. It was a 1969 Mark II. Uh, I had to park it on a hill. I was, I was in Bristol. I had to park it on a hill because the battery was so crap. I I needed <laughs> I needed to, I needed to roll it that hill. Did you yeah. used to have to put a plastic tub over? I think the third spark plug to keep the water oh, out. The, the, the distributors. They all trip the marigold. Yeah. Off. You, you you cut the fingertips off a of marigold and put it over the distributor so to keep the water out. My next car was a Ford Sierra. Um, and anyway, I looked at the stats. The new BMW Mini is wider and heavier than a Ford Sierra. It's oh, actually, yeah. it's not Mini at all. It's anything. It's, it's, it's a Maxi. not Mini. Yes. How could it be heavier? That's the bit I don't get. It is. Like, it's, it's, it's got good, inside? It's a good it, couple of hundred kilograms I, heavier. It's all the safety stuff, isn't it? And it's rigidity. And that's why car engine power is going up, because they have to have so much mass to carry around. That's um, true, and it's it's not just that it's wider as well. It's wider than a Ford Sierra um, by about two inches, I think. Um, <laughs> but 
on engines that at least that's developed positively like um i have a honda civic and it gets better fuel economy than my original 69 mini yet is probably three times as powerful <laughs> Stephen usher is saying that apparently the current countryman mini is as big as a freelander <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yes, yeah, so going back to Lavecon's paint jobs, no idea, no idea if we're even going to get one. But if we do, I'm going to say Crate and an SRV, I think. So what, what about you, Shan? I think Crate, Crate, probably one of the Challenger Chieftain. We've already got the Chieftain, so it could be the other one. Challenger the or one. the Defender. Yeah. Um, Corvette? Lavecon skin, maybe? Yeah, there's still not a Corvette skin, that's true. We've got the cutter, but not the Corvette. Or Frontier could break the mould and saying, tough, you're not having one anymore. Come, we, we, can't, we can't expect it. We, you know. And, and to be honest, they'd be quite within their rights to do so. We're oh, talking, you know, we, you know, we're expecting what freebies they're going to give us at Lavecon because they always have done. But it's new regime now, so, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Do you guys want to enter into this game as well? Uh, no, no, I'm not actually in game at the moment. So that, no, I mean, really would you, do you want to enter into what paint jobs will we get at Lavecon from Frontier? Ooh, um... into that into that game. <laughs> Sorry, I misunderstood you for a second. Uh, it would be nice, actually. One thing that occurs to me is that you know about SRVs is not even really about the paint jobs so much. It's like, but why has there not been anything more than just the standard SRV? I know that's not the question you mm. asked, but it's just something that just occurred to me. I just had an idea, Ben. Yeah, go. I I want to see a Labecon engine trail. What would that be like? Well, it'd be it'd be orange smoke with like fading to yellow, and then. Black smoke, and then it Can might they do that? come out. I don't see why not. And that would be a cool thing because be if you could change the color of your engine smoke on the fly, you could have the red arrows, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't do that. Yes, can't, awesome. They could do a paint job for the uh, for the dolphin. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, but no one will put on the ships, you know. So. The Dolphin is actually not a bad ship at all. Um, I had one. I put one. My alt account has one for exploration, and it's even even without the Guardian stuff, it does pretty well. Yeah, I know a lot of people just use the Dolphin for puttering around the bubble in. Well, exactly. It's a good ship. I think most people I know have good things to say about. Yeah. Um. So, the other thing that happened last week was the announcement of the announcement of the Enclave, which is Frontier's next um, interstellar initiative. Which I, I like the premise. I have to admit that we're running. We're basically we're stealing too many void opals, and and um, Aegis wants us to find more. So, I, I quite like like that idea. Um. It's going to be interesting to see where it heads off because obviously the first one is the first community goal, which isn't a community goal or is or who knows what the heck it is. But that's basically going to be was handing in exploration data, isn't it? Um, I think that's the interesting part, yeah. Because we've had one of these for a long time and exploration data 
you know, community or whatever they want to call it. Mm-hmm. That's a nice yeah. thing. I mean, it's a shame they didn't do it at the end of Distant Worlds or something. I mean, I know some people are still coming back from probably will cash in. And I think one guy I know has actually like cashed in more than a billion so far oh. and, like, and then gone to the, near the top of the ranking. Was he going to do that? I can't. Has he actually started yet? I don't think he planned to do this or he has done it. Has it actually begun yet? The Enclave is starting on Thursday. Oh, that was it. He just no. planned to do that. That's probably but, it. <laughs> but I think, if I remember correctly, and I might correct me if I'm wrong here, but the exploration data, it's only within a certain distance of where the CG is actually being handed out from. So you can't go and hand in like a billion ah. credits worth of data from. No, that makes a lot more sense. To be fair, I just saw the video for the Enclave. I didn't actually look at the detail. Um, so yeah, that would make a bit more sense. Please correct me if I'm wrong with that, because I, I um, this is just something I think I heard about, and I can't, I can't promise about it. Basically, ah, but you just said it on live radio, so it must be true. It must be true. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure that's actually how it works, but anyway, great if it um, was. Just said stuff and it happened, you know. Yeah, sadly, I don't think so. Um, oh, that's interesting. Frontier don't actually have a link to it, link to the details part of it from their video. Damn. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go into the forums to find it, but it could even just be something that I heard, um, as opposed to an actual fact. Um, but if they are doing that and they are saying, right, it has to be, it has to be data from within a certain radius, or it has to be data that was scanned after the fourth of of July. Or data that was scanned between the fourth of July and the whatever the hell four plus seven is thirteenth. Um, so between the data that was say between the fourth and the eleventh. Actually, aren't am I right in thinking CGs are now they're not seven days, are they anymore? There's no CGs anymore. Well, whatever the hell they want to call the bloody things. <laughs> I don't know with the Sagittarius ICG that finished on the Wednesday rather than the Thursday, didn't it? I, I can't. I can't get away from Cyclotel's um, description of CGs as like it's a knockout. You know, where you have a bucket and you need to go through obstacles and then empty mm-hmm. the bucket at the other mm-hmm. end and then run back and fill the bucket up some more and then run back and and do that. And I think in some ways the initiatives are still like the it's a knockout bucket filling thing. It really. I mean, they are totally yeah, bucket filling. Um, but yeah, if they did it between the 4th and 11th or within, say, a thousand light years of wherever the hell you, you started out from, that's that seems fair rather than, as you say, people coming back from God knows what with a billion credits of data. That would that would be a little bit cheating. Um, and Wotherspoon's raising a good point that the, the problem with exploration CGs is if you scan things in the area, you can't scan it again. Uh, for that CG. And of course, the CGs are usually within the bubble. Ah, uh, yes, the tinfoil hatted amongst you would say, well, in that case, you buy a new account and read. And they're on sale! <laughs> it's a good time. Yeah, it's a very, yeah. Although, well, I wouldn't really want to take a brand new, um, a brand new Sidey out to the Pleiades unless I really, really had to. Although, as you found out, it only takes about five minutes 
to get yourself into a, into a cobra or something at least. So it's not There's that. I think if you go mining these days, you can buy anything pretty quickly. If you yeah, can, yeah, depends how what your attitude to mining is. I think. I mean, I'm not the most natural miner in the world, but even I've started doing mining on a regular basis now. Uh, actually, I have to. I have to confess. So, one of the things I've been doing. Basic. So, last I've, I've played a hell of a lot of elite, of elite between last Thursday and today. Um, so last Thursday, I was basically about eleven light year, eleven thousand light years behind and to the side of Sagittarius A star, and I was then I flew to a Sagittarius A star, took a few photographs of Explorer's Anchorage. Cursed that the day after I left Sag- Sagittarius A star, they went off and put the uh, the mega ship in there. Um, well, that's right. They've got another mega bus, haven't they? Yeah, so there's another mega bus <laughs> that's flying around the center of the galaxy, basically. Um, I think it's only allowed within 1,000 light years of of Explorer's Anchorage and things like that. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's more, it's more like a park and ride, isn't it? Than... Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's doing some kind of circuit, isn't it? It's going, it's going to do a regular kind of a galactic of... loop of shame. Yeah, yes, wow. basically. <laughs> no, it's a park and ride, is what it is. Yeah, yeah, it's like um, a weird park and ride. Yeah. So anyway, that that arrived the day after. So I I flew from eleven thousand eleven Kylies in the wrong the wrong side of Sagay. To Sagay, then from Sagay to Colonia. I then landed at Colonia, and then I made a total cock up, and ordered my crate that I had at Sagay for doing the mining CG for DW2. I went off and ordered that to follow me to Colonia for some stupid, stupid reason. Then I went off and hit myself over the head. I was like, "Why the hell did I do that?" Um, and then flew from Colonia to the bubble, um, and then I made it back to the bubble on. Saturday, maybe Sunday morning, and then when I realised I'd been a complete idiot and basically pissed away two two hundred million, I went off and took my imperial cutter out for a spot of void opal mining, and in a couple, well, about four or five hours, made about hundred million. Yeah, I tried void opal mining in a cutter on a bigger ship, and it was a real pain in the bum. Oh, it really, really is a pain in the bum. Um, you know, I think so the Python's like- a good thing for it. That's what I took. I took a python. And the thing I like about the python, the void open mining, it's got the central hard points. So mm-hmm. when you're aiming your your missiles, you know they are direct. You haven't got to work worry about any offsets. It's just exactly where to shoot them. Whereas if you go for a crate, the you know they they're not quite central. So uh, mm-hmm. python is a ship, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But I was I had my cutter kitted out for mining, so I basically I jumped in, into my cutter and took a mining, and you know it was all very doable. One thing actually, you know how we were, the couple of weeks ago we were talking about ideas that we'd like to be able to do basically, and how about the idea of having a mining SLF? So you know, like a, like an SLF with an abrasion blaster on it that you could take into the the asteroid that you've blown up, and but it's really quite tight in that gap between the asteroid that you've blown up, and you go in with your abrasion blaster, and then shoot all the stuff off the inside of it. Imagine if you had a, a SLF with an abrasion blaster, and your so your mothership's still out there 
with your uh, with the the canisters coming in and scooping everything up, but you're just nipping around, shooting all the chunks off I'm, asteroids. I'm not sure That's how well fun. that would work. I'm not sure how well, well that would work because what I found when I've done it is if you put your ship too thick in the middle of the debris, the limpets just bash their heads and blow up. Mm. If you were to use your ship to then blow off the chunks of minerals, then the limpets could be blowing up on the remains of the asteroid. And also, oh. I don't tend to um, blow them all off at once. I wait until they're finished, finished collecting before adding more. I do that as well, to be honest. Um, bloody hell, Grant's shooting a big shark. Um, sorry, <laughs> Inch, if Grant's playing Sea of Thieves at the moment. Is he jumping at? Is he what? Jumping at. Uh, no, he's just shooting with a big thing. and I think he's been eaten, actually. He's dead now. That's a surprise, looking at Grant and he's dead. <laughs> at least he's not having to buy a sh- do a ship rebuying of his of his Type 9, though. Um, or even if you could actually go off and scoop things in your SLF, that'd be quite fun. Because obviously they're, they're tiny and manoeuvrable, and I just think they'd be so much fun for scooting around inside of the asteroid after you've blasted it to hell. And that was just a silly, silly idea. Um, but I did go off and I made my money back from doing that. I think that's really about all I've been doing in game, apart from, apart from flying back, obviously. And then I was like, "Yeah, I went off and threw away two hundred million to get my crate to the, to Colonia for some stupid reason. I'll go and make that back again." Yeah, Colonia's a nice place, though. I mean, it's a, you should. It's good to have one ship parked there at some point. So yeah, I don't know how familiar oh, you are with the region, but it's a nice place to be. It's a lovely place to be, and I did. I do really like it. Um, but then I was like, "Do I want?" Do I want this? Do I want my main ca- my main account to stay out in Colonia for the indefinite future? And I was like, no, I don't. I want to get my ass back to the bubble. Um, so I just basically went off and cheesed it back to the bubble. Um, didn't I mean, like my, and... my shenanigans account is in the bubble. I've yeah, spent I spent a while last week getting the engineers in Colonia with a view to improving my ships to cart them back, and I was going to take my exploration conda out to Colonia to get the um, the Grade 5 engineer for, I think, it's life support weight. Mm-hmm. The Grade 5 there. But then I worked out it would be like 0.002 light year difference it would make. And I thought, do That's I really want to travel 20-odd thousand light years for a 0.002 improvement in jump range? No. Yeah, it's not really not worth it. Right, anyway, we're rapidly approaching the end of the show. Is there anything else that anyone wants to talk about? Well, workers of lave liberals have just offered me a mission to recover four stolen black boxes. Yeah, I've got something that I think I got that one from Commander Parks. Um, oh no, this, I got something from Defense Party of Lave that apparently there are some stolen some stolen black boxes in Tian Isla. Uh, That's a stolen from the graveyard. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say it's gonna have seats with the grave, yeah. Yeah. Right. Alright, anything else that we want to mention anyway? Lavecon, baby. Yeah, Lavecon on this coming Saturday. Uh, although obviously some of us will be there from Friday doing the setup and things like that. Uh there are no gold actually there might be there may well be a gold ticket available. Um Speak to Karen and you might get lucky, basically. I know there's a waiting list and things like that. Um, 
our sister station, I'm doing this totally without show notes, obviously. Sisters, our illegitimate sister station, Hutton Orbital, is on Thursdays, but I don't think they'll be broadcasting this coming Thursday. Um, Command, no, Commander Wotherspoon is following us up after this show finishes. So I think that's us for another episode of Lave Radio. Not another episode. Oh, it's, yes. It's another non episode. Another oh. non episode of Lave Radio. Because this is 249B. Yes. So it's not. Yes, there will be Lave Radio live shows. We'll have the the we'll have the Lay Radio Dusty show on Saturday, and then we'll have the Young Blood in inverted commas on the Sunday, I believe. Uh, and we'll have Hutton Orbital on Sunday. Dockers, sorry, Hutton Orbital on Saturday. Dockers is on Saturday. Frontier will be there on Saturday. There's a streamers panel on Saturday. What? All, what? There's loads of things happening on Sunday as well, but I can't remember what the hell they are at the moment. I feel terrible now. Partying up. Pardon? Tidying no, there's this. But there is a, there's a lot of good content on the Saturday on there the is. Sunday as well. They're, I'm just trying to remember what it is. They're balancing us, Ben. We lay radios on Sunday, well, isn't it? Yeah. The proper um, show. So let's have a look. Sunday main room. So, uh, well, we've got the raffle obviously on the Sunday. Oh, Phoenix Point is on the Sunday. Um, and the Drabble readings are on the Sunday. So actually, this Sunday's look is looking a fair bit quieter. We've got the we've got the the raffle. Uh, that's going on all day. Then we've got Fixed Point, the Drabble readings, the podcast, the Lay Radio Live podcast, and then the then the raffle and closing speeches and things like that. So actually, yeah, the Sunday is looking quieter this year. Um, apart from obviously the Lay Radio show. Anyway, that's it for another non-episode of Lay Radio. Um, and can I think of anything else? No, no, no. Okay, fine. So. Until next time, fly safe, and if you can do that, fly dangerous.
News Digest, 2nd of July, 3305. We read the news so you don't have to. In this week's news, revelations likely as Red Family Finder prepares to testify. Duval condemned for a zoo animal slur. Fears of galactic meta-alloy shortage. More space junk at the heart of the galaxy. Revelations likely as Red Family Finder prepares to testify. A key member of the notorious Red Family seems ready to testify against the cartel after handing herself in. Jan Sandoval, one of the founding members of the cartel, is reported to have handed herself in to the Federal Intelligence Agency without prior warning, leading to confusion about what her motivation might have been. FIA spokesperson Viola Trask confirmed that Sandoval is being held at FIA headquarters in Olympus Village, and that she's willing to testify against her former gang members, something that could not only bring other members of the Red family to justice, but could open a window onto corruption within the Federation and the Soul system in particular. The Red Family has been implicated in the downfall of tech startup Herculean Machines after it was discovered that drug money was being used to fund development. And disgraced congressman Morgan Unwin was discovered last year to have been running drugs for the cartel. Who else of the great and the good of the soul system are quaking in their boots, wondering what Jan Sandoval knows about their dodgy deals and black market trading? Jan Sandoval comes from very close to the top of the Red Family, which is headed by master criminal Oberon Church. Her testimony could be explosive. Duval condemned for a zoo animal slur. People's Princess Ashling Duval has been condemned for likening imperial slaves to zoo animals after she hit out at anti-slavery group Autonomy. Autonomy released 4,000 imperial slaves in a well-meaning but misguided gesture last week, resulting in large numbers of homeless ex-slaves in and around Port Isabel in Eotienses. Unlike Duval's Unchain, which releases good old-fashioned ordinary slaves, Autonomy's attempt to release imperial slaves seems to have misunderstood the nature of indentured labour in the Empire, and the contract that imperial slaves take on to work off their debts. Released unwillingly from their contract, most of the 4,000 find themselves destitute, without any means of making a living. But the prismatic princess's choice of language has caused serious offence among those she hoped to assist. She is quoted as saying that you cannot simply set huge numbers of people loose as if they were zoo animals being released into the wild, and that imperial slaves needed to be cared for like pets. Comparing these hard-working imperial slaves to dumb beasts of burden is highly offensive to imperial slaves and to those who work to make their lives more tolerable. Parachuting a princess in to pontificate on the lives of the lowest stratum of imperial society, lives she knows nothing about, is the sort of well-meaning claptrap the liberal elite of the empire hands out, where in fact... The person who most cares for the well-being of imperial slaves is the person who has most to lose if they are not healthy and able to work. Zamina Torval. 
fears of galactic meta-alloy shortage. Aegis Research is expected to issue an appeal for exploration data that may lead to the discovery of more sources of meta-alloys amid reports that stocks are running dangerously low. At the time of their discovery three years ago, meta-alloys were used to reverse Thargoid sensor damage to stations, although following structural improvements last year, this is no longer necessary. Meta-alloys are still believed to be useful. As their name suggests, they are a very strong alloy of metals, with mysterious healing properties. No one actually knows what meta-alloys are used for nowadays. But the demand appears to remain strong, and the Thargoid barnacle sites that used to be such a fertile source have been harvested dry. Aegis Core, the combat division of Aegis, believes that a continuing supply of Thargoid-created meta-alloys is vital to the war effort, and is hopeful that many more barnacle sites can be found, harvested and desecrated in the fight to use Thargoid technology to eliminate the Thargoid threat from the galaxy. More space junk at the heart of the galaxy. The consequences of the recent Distant Worlds 2 expedition continue to be felt in the area around Sagittarius A star, with the deployment this week of two new man-made monstrosities in this hitherto undeveloped galactic wilderness. In addition to the Acellus Starport Explorer's anchorage, Stumii FG-YD7561 now has to put up with the Event Horizons Science Relay, which has been deployed around planet CD1. And the deep space science vessel Distant Worlds is starting a long slow tour of points of interest near the galactic core. Limited by licence to remain within 1,500 light-years of Explorer's Anchorage and with a maximum jump range of 500 light-years, the Distant Worlds will jump once per fortnight on a seven-stop tour taking in a dangerous binary star system, the Sagittarius A-star supermassive black hole, a neutron star, the so-called Storms of Fenris Sulphur, the Blink-of-an-Eye Remnant and the S-class giant carbon star Merrill's Legacy before returning to Explorer's Anchorage to begin the voyage again. So if slow, dignified, guided tour exploration is your thing, you might like to park up there and wake up every couple of weeks to peer out through the viewport. How exciting! And that's this week's Galnet News. Galnet News, we read the news so you don't have to. I'm Mr. Dusty. Give me your trash. Hey, hey. And... Yannick, oh shit, this can't be good. Your PC ran into a problem and needs to restart. We're just collecting some error information and then we'll restart for you. That can't be good during a window of can it? Were you a good no. boy and took a backup? Uh, I've got backups, so I, I can nuke it and nuke it and from orbit if I need to. Just how far um, back are you backup? Recent I backups though. Oh I can I can nuke I can wipe everything. I don't give a monkeys. You know, I've got everything's on everything all my data is properly backed up.
Um, anyway, ignoring my ba my PC problems. So I guess while I try and restart my computer again, and we'll see what happens. I don't know. Should I actually? If my PC is saying we're collecting some error information and then we'll restart for you, one hundred percent. But it hasn't gone off and restarted for me. Should I restart it myself, or should I um, wait and see if it actually does restart for me? Whenever I get the blue screen of death, I always hit the reset button. Yeah. I wait for the diagnostics or countdown to go, and then I press the reset button. Uh, the hunt is saying, sitting at 100% complete. Um, it's just like, no, we're doomed. Oh, you just Top said you've got lots of backup. PMP watch code. Oh, yeah. You just said you've got lots of backups and stuff, so there's yes, no but that harm doesn't, in... that doesn't actually help me starting life today. Um, 